Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierman. For 36 seasons, Tom Gage covered the Detroit Tigers for the Detroit News. His career spanned the memorable rookie season of Mark Fidrich in 1976, the historic 1984 championship, the doldrums of the 1990s, and the resurgence of the Tigers in 2006 and beyond. In 2015, Gage was honored at the Baseball Hall of Fame with the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, the highest honor of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Gage's new book is The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Detroit Tigers. I spoke with Gage yesterday about his book, his career, and his perspective on the Tigers' past and their future. Tom Gage, welcome. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Your book ranks the top 50 men and moments in Tigers history, and it goes, rather than in countdown fashion, it starts with number one. So let's start there. Number one, the Kurt Gibson home run in Game 5 of the 1984 World Series. How tough a call was this? And tell me about that moment. Well, it was a tough call from this standpoint. I think 68 was the better World Series. I think 68 was the best World Series in which the Tigers have ever played. And, and certainly uh, one of the magic moments of, of team history. But uh, for, an, for an isolated one-time event, I think Gibson's home run was electrifying. Kurt Gibson's home run off Goose Gossage. Because there were so many ingredients of it. And, and frankly, because I think television made it such an event. It, it, it gave you the emotion on, on Gossage's face. It gave you the, the uh, interaction between uh, Gibson and Sparky in the dugout. So when it comes, it comes down to one individual moment as being the most iconic in Tiger history, I think it's Gibson's home run. And it's interesting, it wasn't actually the game-winning home run or go-ahead home run or a walk-off. The Tigers were up one, but it put the game out of the reach. And like you said, that drama of the setup and with Gibson being the figure he was in Tigers history makes that moment stand out. Yeah, it really wasn't a great uh, World Series, but uh, it was. It really was the, the exclamation point. It was the punctuation on, on the Tigers winning that year. I mean, it was, it was a statement. And, uh, again, there were so many elements with, with basically Dick Williams wanting probably to walk Gibson and, and Gossage saying, no, I can get him. And, and, you know, Sparky, Sparky with his, with his gum and, and saying he, you know, even as the ball flew out of the ballpark, he don't, you know, he didn't, he don't want to walk you. He don't want to walk you as if it's still, uh, as if, as if the pitch hadn't been thrown yet. I just thought it was fascinating. And for each of these episodes, I like how, even if they're familiar to us, you find a new layer or a new insight in the background. In this case, I didn't realize that Gibson had a lousy career record against Gossage. I think only one hit before that. And so Gossage wasn't entirely crazy to say that he would get Gibby out. Oh, Gossage absolutely wanted to pitch to him. He thought he could get him. And, uh, you know, at at the end when uh, Gibson, uh, I don't know if they're friends now, but they're friendly. And, you know, and when Gibson sent him a dozen baseballs to sign and they, uh, and they exchanged messages about the home run, you know, and, and it was Gibson who, who said, who put his own batting average on Goss, uh, against Gossage on the, uh, on the baseballs. And, uh, you know, they, so it, it, many years later now, what is it? It's 33 years later. Uh, I, I think they get a kick out of it on both sides. 
Well, I like how your book delves into history from just about the beginning. Uh, Ty Cobb is in it, Harry Heilman, Sam Crawford, uh, even Virgil Trucks. How different was your approach for these historical episodes deep in history versus ones that you had witnessed firsthand? Well, uh, I knew I, I, I'm a, you know, I grew up in Detroit. I grew up a Tigers fan and I knew, I knew the names that, and, and I knew basically the careers of the people that I was writing about before I started covering the Tigers in, in 79. I mean, I started, I went to my first game in 1956 and I paid close attention to, to the Tigers, uh, all my life, but I didn't know many, many of the chapters that, that I wrote about, I had to research and I wanted to find, I just didn't want to regurgitate stats and tell people that Harry Heilman had hit, you know, such and such and that Ty Cobb had never won a world series. I, I, I wanted to find out something about them in the archives and the free press has a wonderful, uh, digitalized, uh, uh, archive system easier than, than the news, but I count, I consulted, uh, both papers and, uh, you know, so I was able to, go back into the papers and find something that, uh, you know, it was still the reporter in me, like, uh, you know, the, mostly about Heilman, some about Cobb and some about the, the different individuals I knew very little about, like Bobo Newsom. So, uh, that was my approach, uh, do a lot of research from, well, the Tigers played the first American league game in 1901. And, uh, from, from 1901 to about, 1955, I had to do a lot of research. You first covered the Tigers in 1976, and the emergence of rookie Mark Fidrich, the magical season. For those of us who didn't see him at Tiger Stadium and didn't see him uh, on TV at the time, have since looked at the YouTube clips. Uh, can you explain what, is it, what it was like to have this player come out of the blue and just capture Detroit and national attention the way he did? Yeah, absolutely electrifying. I mean, Baseball needed a figure like that. The Tigers needed a, a figure like that, and he and he just—I mean, he wasn't a—he wasn't a great prospect. I mean, he was a good enough prospect, but and uh, at the beginning of the year, it didn't look like he was going to have be anything like he turned out to be. But uh, it was his personality. But it wasn't just his personality. It wasn't even just his pitching. It was—it was a combination of the two, and it, and. A lot of people thought it was uh, that he was an immature individual, and yes, I mean he was a kid, but he was a mature pitcher because he knew how to take command on the mound, and that's what uh, and that was a big ingredient in his success. I write about Claudel Washington wanting to slow him down; that that the bird used to want to work at a certain pace, and he wanted to dictate the pace of the game, and he liked to work fast. And Claudel Washington wanted to slow him down, so he. He did everything he could to slow him down, so much so that the bird kind of crouched down and waited for Washington to go through his uh, routine and finally get ready to hit. And then the bird threw a pitch right at his knees, and it went right where he wanted it to go. He didn't want to hit the hitter, hit the batter, but he wanted to show him who was boss. And I, I thought that was a, you know, that's a, that's a mature pitcher. That's a guy who's t- a pitcher telling the hitter, look, I'm in charge here, and you're going to do as I say. And uh, he wasn't, uh, I don't know, he, he wasn't, uh, uh, when he was on the mound, he wasn't in awe of what he was doing or where he was. He, he knew how to pitch. Something I always wondered about Fidrich, obviously what he's known for are his habits, sometimes called antics on the mound, talking to the ball, sweeping the dirt with his hand. 
I've always wondered, you talk about the battle with Washington. Did hitters or, or opponents ever take that the wrong way? You know, today there are debates about bat flips and fist pumping and, and fear that you're showing somebody up or you're, you're, you're trying to be a self-promoter. With Fidridge, none of that seemed to be in play. Did opponents take it as innocently as, it's, as he seemed to express that? Well, maybe not at the time. I think there were some who thought that it was a, a distraction and uh, the hitters don't like to be distracted. But uh, George Scott might have been one of those. And uh, but when uh, when they saw the stuff that he threw, and and with 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 Fidrich, it was not so much just the raw stuff. It was where he put his pitches. He knew he, pinpoint control. And uh, if they if they didn't like his antics, that gave way to respect. So that respect for the way he pitched won them over. We talked about 84. Let me go back to that. You've written in, a, in his later memoir, Sparky Anderson wrote that after that 35-5 and five start, he felt the weight of the pressure. He didn't want to be the manager of the team that had that start and then couldn't deliver. And he said he wished he could go back and enjoy that season as it happened because in the moment he was overcome by that stress. Now, he didn't really let that on to the public and to the media during the year, at least publicly. Behind the scenes, when you sat with him, did he voice that, or could you recognize that in him? That stress that the start put on him? He, yeah, he did. I remember. I remember in his office after, after when it was all over, him letting off steam and saying, "You know that uh, now, now that uh, even even the the specter of possible criticism and not finishing up. I mean, the Tigers would have felt it was a failed season if they hadn't won the World Series. It wasn't just." getting to the world series it was it was it was winning it and sparky was sparky was very relieved and i i can't remember his exact words and anything but i mean it was rather vindictive against the media and he apologized for it later because it didn't come off the way that he wanted it to sound but he, he it was basically well now now i'm i'm beyond your you know the criticism any criticism you guys could could level at me and for the most part i mean sparky Sparky had many sides of him, uh, to him, but uh, for the most part, he was he was certainly media friendly, and he he didn't mean to, for it to sound vindictive. But he was so relieved that they had won, and that that uh, he had now won World Series in 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 both leagues. That was important to him, but that 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 team would be remembered for success, not for failure. He was media-friendly, he was endearing, and I've wondered, you know, at times he tried to deflect attention from players by sort of soaking up the media spotlight himself. Did you ever have to kind of run in your mind, now wait a second, am I getting played, am I getting filibustered by Sparky, or were you able to just enjoy enjoy it as he as you were interacting with him? No, we were, <laughs> we, we did get played, and we were filibustered, and we knew it was happening when it was happening. <laughs> but there was no way to there was no way to interrupt him. You just kind of had to you just had to kind of sit through it and let Sparky Sparky always thought he was putting one over on us, but he he really wasn't. But there was just so much material to write. I mean, he was great to deal with, and the, the my worst running with him was about a quote from Billy Martin that I published one day, and and uh, it was about I Martin said I could make a living managing against that guy. And it was after, uh, I can't remember what the event was, but Sparky asked me to stay back in his office after, uh, um, you know, this daily meeting with the media. And he, he was really upset. But then he, then he would 
you know, there was always that twinkle in his eye, and he, he said, but you're okay, Tommy, my boy, because I read it in the Cleveland paper as well. But so he, 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 he had his way of telling me that he was upset and that, that he was disappointed that uh, the quote had, had uh, been run, but he knew that it wasn't my fault that, that Billy had actually said it because he had seen it already. Now, he wrote later, and maybe he said at the time, he wanted the Tigers to be a dynasty in the 80s. He wanted them to be, to some extent, what the Reds were in the 70s, the big red machine. And obviously, it didn't pan out. Is there one thing or a couple things you point to as to why the Tigers couldn't get back to the World Series and win another title? Well, no, I I, I can't say there's one or two things because, you know, they should have won again. Uh, In 85, they should have won have won again but in 84 it all came together and a lot of it was the fact that they had deep pitching the, the you know even before willie hernandez took over as who was with the team all year but he didn't really become a dominant closer until well into the season but they offset that by uh having aurelio lopez do so well early in the season so they, they never had the combination of parts again after that. And I think that later on in his career, uh, you know, Sparky had some personal things happen with his family and later in his career. And it was such a, an emotional commitment for him to, uh, to be all in with his team. I, I think that there were players that were disappointed uh, with his managing later on. I'm not saying that he he wasn't a, a good manager throughout his time with, with the Tigers, but I don't know that he was making the emotional commitment that it, that it really took because it was so wearing on him. Well, Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell are in your book, of course, and hopefully before too long they'll also be in the Hall of Fame. I've always wondered what is standing in their way and wondering, is it the fact that they didn't win that other title? They never won uh, the MVP. Trammell came close in 87. I was really struck to hear you say recently that you thought it was important that in the early wave when they were on the ballots, the Tigers had had such sustained futility. They had been bad for the entire 1990s. And just sort of that stain, that stink, seemed to wear off onto the candidacy of Whitaker and Trammell. You think that's a big reason that uh, that they haven't been able to get over the hump? Well, Whitaker retired after 1995, uh, and, and Trammell, I, I think it also hurt them that they that they retired in, in separate years because their first years on the ballot uh, were different. I think people saw out of them as such a tandem that they both, I mean, Trammell did stay on the ballot throughout his 15 years and, and Whitaker was gone after one year. But I, I just don't think Whitaker had the name without, if they had been on the ballot at the same time, I think Whitaker certainly would have been stayed on the ballot for, for several years. And I, when they do get in the hall of fame, Nathan, and I think they will, they'll get on together. Uh, they'll, they'll make it together through one of the, the, the different committees are now called the era committees. And, uh, I wouldn't be surprised that uh, if if they get on at the same time, but I I think Jack Morris will get into the Hall of Fame before they do. Really interesting. And what's your case for him? Well, just that he was a money pitcher, that he was uh, that he won World Series games for a lot of teams. Uh, it helps Jack now to be uh, visible uh, in baseball as as a broadcaster, and uh, I think that uh, his reputation as a big game pitcher. 
uh, not just with the Tigers, but with but with with the Twins, and then and then with the Blue Jays, will win the day. And he came close. I mean, with a, with a percentage, I believe in the sixties. What I think his highest percentage might have been sixty-two or sixty-three. That's going to warrant a re-examination of his candidacy, and I think he'll make it. I saw a quote recently from Milt Wilcox, and I guess he's had a sort of falling out with the franchise, but he criticized the team, the Tigers, for not campaigning for Tramon Whitaker. Obviously, it's a real head-scratcher that their numbers haven't been retired. Does the team itself have a role to play in this push to get them in? I don't think so. It's not like um, yearly awards. You'll, you'll get, you'll get an, uh, an email once in a while from teams about somebody for Rookie of the Year and somebody for... I mean, they don't campaign for manager of the year, but um, for Hall of Fame, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think, well, there was a campaign, a, a, a it was kind of a public campaign uh, from some media for Tim Raines, but I, teams themselves don't campaign for players. Um, and, you know, the Tigers have done a good job of, I, I think, well, they fired him once, but uh, Trammell and then they rehired him. I think that, Trammell uh, is remains in the in a, a current baseball figure, just as a you know a, a front office uh, help assistant, and uh, that's about all they can do. I don't I don't think there are publicity campaigns for individual candidates. Now Edgar Martinez, I, that, that might be the exception because I think the I think the Mariners really want him in, but uh, you know I've been a voter for a long time and I don't remember any onslaught of 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 contact from individual teams. Yeah, I don't either. So the quote did kind of surprise me. Uh, but what about the number retirements? Not that that has anything necessarily directly to do with the Hall of Fame, but for some fans it rubs them the wrong way to see numbers one and three on jerseys to this day. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, he he basically is given this option that if a player wants to uh, wear the numbers, uh, like like Kinsler does for uh, for Trammell, he has to get you know he has to say okay. And now you can also say, well, no player is going to say, no, you can't wear my number. But it is a place of honor to have to say yes to, yeah, go ahead, wear my number. You have a chapter on the great Ernie Harwell, and uh, I was glad you did. But my first question was, how did you hear Harwell if you were in the press box all the time? Did they pipe it in, or how did you experience his broadcasting? Uh, no, they didn't They didn't pipe it in. I, you know, I would... Uh, uh, on off days, Ernie is the one I would listen to, and Ernie did broadcast before, certainly before I covered baseball, so I was pretty familiar with his voice. You mentioned that the only hiccup in the history with Harwell and the Tigers was the time where he was given a one-year contract, told it would be his last. The media told this as the story of him being fired. I want to ask you about that because when I was looking back at it recently, I found Joe Fall's column in early January after that happened, and he said, you know, Bo Schembechler is taking the heat for this, but it wasn't his call. He's just trying to take the bullet. And he indicated that, you know, well, maybe Harwell should have just said, okay, it's time for me to step aside. And I think he criticized how he played the media or told the story in the media. Uh, and Sparky was loyal to Bo. I think he either publicly or privately supported Bo. Uh, were there two sides to that story, at least in how it was taken within the team and within the media? Yeah, there were sides of it because what what Ernie did, and this was this when Ernie called for, uh, uh, for a press conference in the Tiger Room at, at Tiger Stadium. I think that I think it was the Tigers' understanding that that the message 
wasn't going to be what it was that it that it wasn't going to kind of be a um well this is uh this is what's happening and it, it, they didn't think it was going to be a situation that would kick back on them and it and it did uh and so they I, there were probably those in the organization that really never forgave Ernie for setting them up for criticism but i disagreed with joe on his column because you know Ernie deserved to be Ernie did deserve to be treated better and uh you know Ernie was the kindest man I think I ever met I mean there there were you know he I I write about the time that uh, my son was going to have an ear operation and I picked up we were in Anaheim and I was headed out to the ballpark and Ernie was going out early and I saw him at the hotel so I gave him a ride and Ernie always uh, would ask about families and I said, oh, Ernie, I'm kind of waiting for a call today to make sure my son is okay. He's having an ear tube surgery. And at a red light, he said he, he made me bow my head <laughs> at a red light. And uh, he didn't make me bow my head, but he volunteered a prayer. And it was really a, a, a magical, special moment for me because it, it just showed the kindness of the man. Yeah, that's why I thought, I mean, unless I'm naive, I didn't think Harwell would go in and try to manipulate the media in that environment, I thought he was asked a question. And he said, "I can't lie." Well, there were those who thought it was, uh, and that's a good word to use. There were those who thought it was manip- manipulation, and Ernie was honest about it. And it depended on it depended on how far you were from the criticism that was being uh, that was being thrown around. The Tigers did feel somewhat betrayed, and uh, and um, they, they they weren't all that quiet about it. So. Uh, and I don't think, I think Ernie and Sparky remained friends, but not as close as they had been. Hmm. Well, I'm glad it's a happy ending overall with, with Harwell coming back for many years. Um, and at least to our observations on the outside, it seemed like that was smoothed over, at least by the end. It was. And uh, even though the, I think the broadcasters who uh, replaced him uh, kind of bore the brunt of it, Rick Riz uh, went went back to Seattle and has has happily broadcast uh, Mariner baseball for many years. And Bob Rathbun uh, went. I think he went to the NBA. I think uh, there were some years of bitterness there that it hadn't turned out well for them. But uh, in the end, their careers flourished. You have chapters on Justin Verlander and Miguel Cabrera. They're included in your top fifty. Uh, is there any doubt in your mind that these great players that we've seen over a decade now at Comerica Park? are among the greatest Tigers ever? Well, Verlander would be on my Mount Rushmore pitcher, Tiger pitchers, um, uh, because I don't think he's in the hall, baseball Hall of Fame yet. I think he's going to have to win some more games. Another no-hitter would certainly help, but he's doing, he's doing himself a big favor now by, by still showing that he, late in the season here, that he still has, um, has what it takes to win. And I think I think Justin Verlander has another big season in him. You know, the, the arm doesn't show any wear and tear. It's it's absolutely amazing. He just has to, to win some ball games. I think Miguel Cabrera has the numbers already to be in the Hall of Fame. Any margin calls in your book? Uh, people are events. Uh, you have some sidebars for honorable mention, but uh, what were the hardest ones to leave out of the uh, the ranking of the top 50? Well, the hardest ones were the owners. They're not doing anything particularly on 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 the owners. So, for instance, um, not, nothing really extended on on Mike Illich. 
But at the same time, uh, I would have had to do one probably on Walter Briggs and then Spike Briggs and and um, Frank Navin because Navin was a fascinating figure when he uh, when the Tigers finally won a World Series in 1935. He basically say, "Now I can die a happy man," and that's exactly what he did. Uh, a month later or six weeks later, he was out riding his horse and and had a heart attack. But I didn't want I, I didn't want chapters about the owners to take anything away from the events or the players involved. And I only have one chapter on a, uh, basically a general manager and that's Jim Campbell, but it's not about how he was a general manager. It was about him finally ushering in the modern age of entertainment to, to, uh, for the fight tiger fans. You have a chapter on the closing of tiger stadium, the final game in 1999 with a Robert Fick home run it's sobering to realize that no Tiger fan under the age of 20 has any memories of a game in that stadium. Uh, for those of us whose uh, memories of being in that park are just essential to what we understand being a Tiger fan to be, uh, how do you articulate or describe what that park uh, was like and the importance of it uh, to fans who, who didn't set foot in it? Well, <laughs> the first thing I tell them is go watch that, uh, go watch that at bat on YouTube. Because uh, you know everything's on YouTube, and you can you can you can, see, you can hear Frank Beckman uh, broadcast it, and and you can see uh, the home run, and and I I think uh, I think it's essential to to see uh, to watch it and to experience the moment uh, yourself. But uh, Tiger Stadium, you know, it's impossible I think to convey what Tiger Stadium meant to people who would go through those, especially the upper deck corridors, and see the green grass. I mean, Comerica Park just doesn't have the same feel to it. I, you know, I'm, I'm hot and cold about Comerica Park. I, I don't think it's a great park, but I don't think it's a bad one. But Tiger Stadium, until the later years when I didn't even know what was dripping on me, you know, <laughs> as, uh, you know if you sat in the lower deck and something dripped on you, you feared the worst. But, uh, and it was rusty, and it was, but it was a ballpark. And, and 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 even now, when I watched the other day, I was watching uh, uh, Game Five of the '68 World Series, and uh, you know, just just to see the the old dugouts. I mean, it was history, it was memories, and it was it was baseball. I mean, it was, I fully acknowledge that the you know the way the game is presented it has changed, and it needed to change. You know, you have fireworks, you have mascots, you have a lot of fun. But back then, it was a ballpark, and baseball was the product. Let me ask you about where the Tigers stand now. It feels like a crossroads season. I guess you could say the window of contention, it looks now, closed in 2013. But at any rate, this year they officially said, okay, we're shopping big assets and looking to the future. Is this a step forward because we're not going to have the big contracts, the aging veterans who are going to uh, hog space and salary cap room on the roster or is it a step back because it looks like, at least for the immediate future, contention is not a priority? Well, I don't know if it's a crossroads or a dead end. Uh, the other day, I was I, I was about ready to tweet that, that, that they were a boring team. And I thought that, you know, I, I think they've been a boring team. But then all of a sudden they came back against the Twins and, and won with a, an Upton home run. And it was a, an exciting time. And I mentioned that game only because they still have the ingredients to be exciting. And I don't know why they're underachieving to the extent that they are. I think uh, they, they've got some 
strong starting pitching. They don't have depth in, at starting pitching. But uh, And the, the lineup, they've certainly been hurt this year by having Cabrera not be what he what he was and hopefully he can be again but this is uh this is a one of those uh red flag seasons for Cabrera because until he comes back and is the force he's always been until he does that again you worry that he he can be that again and Victor obviously isn't what he was but I still think they have they have a strong offensive lineup throughout the heart of the lineup and they just not it, it just doesn't look to me that like they've played with much inspiration, and uh, maybe they've just gotten too old and they they need to inject some more youth in there. Um, and it's it's easy to say, oh, they're not hungry enough. Any any pro ball player has a lot of pride and they're and they're hungry to win because it feels so bad to lose. But they they've gotten stale, that's for sure. Are they closer to needing a blow it up kind of approach like the Cubs and Astros did, and now the White Sox are doing? Or get rid of a few creaky veterans, a few bad contracts, get a few good prospects in the mix, and they can put it back together. Well, I, I think they can. I don't know if they can put it back together. I think they can be to the point of winning anything. I think they can remain competitive with what they have, but uh, they don't seem to do the little things very well. They don't. I'm not impressed with their defense. I'm not impressed with their base running, uh, and uh, or or necessarily there's their speed and they just need more ingredients. But again, they, they can hit the home run and they get, they, they can put together big innings once in a while. Uh, and I don't think, I don't know if the tiger fans are ready to go through bad seasons and get the good season, a, a good season again, because a good season's never guaranteed. You know, when the tigers blew it up and when, when all those 68 ers uh, began to retire and get traded, you know, the mid seventies were, were terrible. And the Tigers went with kids, but the kids weren't real good. So, you know, just going with kids doesn't guarantee anything. I mean, the kids have to be, the kids have to be good. So I'm always in, I'm always in favor of a mix, not just a complete blow up. So Tom, this is your first book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Detroit Tigers. I've heard you say that there might be other books in the future and they might not be necessarily about baseball. Anything you can tell us about your future plans as an author? Well, I think, I think the next book probably will be about baseball, but I, you know, I've been working on it. I have a friend who's a, you know, who, who's a musician and, and who, a musician who never made it. And this is, this would be a book I have to publish myself, but I, I would love to do a, uh, I would love to do a book on the, on how tough it is to be a talented musician who never got a break. So I've been working a little bit on that. He's a, He's a guy from New York and uh, and uh, who tells a lot of good stories, but uh, that's not guaranteed. So um, I think uh, if I'm going to continue to write, and I certainly still have the passion for it, it's going to be about uh, it's going to be about baseball. And uh, you know, next year is a big year for the Tigers. It's the 50th uh, anniversary of '68, and uh, maybe I'll do something about that. Great. Well, in the meantime, we'll enjoy this book, The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Detroit Tigers. I love how it's a book that covers all this ground, and yet for each of these episodes, it really does dig in and tell you something new, uh, if you knew about it, or just give you the details if you weren't familiar with it. So, Tom, thanks for your memories, for your perspectives, and for this book on Tigers history. I really enjoyed it, Mason. Thanks. Tom Gage, Detroit Tigers beat writer for the Detroit News, recipient of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award, 
and author of The Big 50, The Men and Moments That Made the Detroit Tigers. I'm Nathan Birma. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History and join us next time on the Tigers History Podcast.